to you totally made that up the bi-weekly podcast where we tell each other true stories with paranormal supernatural spooky otherworldly elements to them i am nash and that's tiff hey and this week's episode guys it's a doozy i mean it's it's gross and that that might be the title right there just hey y'all it's gross <laughs> i'm not <It> lying <laughs> It's nasty and funky, and I'm excited to hear your story. <laughs> I'm very excited to hear yours. Um, I'm drinking wine in celebration of my story because, uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, our topic today is corpses, and don't be confused. We don't mean zombies or revenants. We specifically mean corpses, the supernatural creepy surrounding the dead. And, you know, nobody's rising from the grave or anything. It's mostly, you know, people's reactions to the dead and stuff like that. It dips a little into life after death in a way, but we're not talking about out-of-body experiences or whatever. You'll understand more once we get into it, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we're, we're thinking, you know, just that cold, dead <laughs> body. That's getting probably bloated and smelly and all those good things. That's it. That's what we're talking about. As they would call it on the show Supernatural, they would call them meat suits. Yes. <laughs> hey, there's a title. There's a title, meat suits, which is... Yeah. I, I feel like we're going to have options. We're going to mm. have so many options. As usual, we'll discuss the titles. Now, I do have to bring this up really quick before we get started. I, my understanding is that you told your son the options we were considering, and he was fully on board with corpses. <laughs> yes, I did. And, and how yeah. old is he? Remind me. He, he's 10. Yeah. He's 10. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get, like, too into it. I wasn't like, hey, buddy, <laughs> here's this and this and this. But, I, I you know, I just kind of was like, all right, witches or corpses? And he's like... <laughs> corpses <laughs> like no question just that's it he was a little curious at first he's like um why are you asking me this he was very he was concerned he was concerned for me to just walk up and be like <laughs> witches or corpses <laughs> you but, must decide yeah. you must choose <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so that's what he went with and so i was like all right that's it that's what we're doing i figured it's a, it's a good way it's a good way to go with it <laughs> so that we don't have to choose we don't have to choose exactly. Um, and we might, yeah, maybe we'll do witches next time. We'll see. Because we've got mm -hmm. some good ones. Good, unique, not oft-heard ones for witches. So I'm going first, you guys, because Tiff went first last time. But also because, well, even though we've, we've got this podcast marked as explicit, I, I cannot stress enough how, how this story I'm about to tell you is just a real wham-dinger. I tell you what. Because y'all y'all know by now, I tend to go for the ones where the more bizarre, the better. And this one delivers on all fronts. And listen, I did some real legwork. I took one for the team. I listened to the majority of the audiobook of our chief subject's memoir, My Stars, The Way He Puts Things. And I've just, I've been jaw dropped more than once. And it takes a lot to shock me. So just keep that in mind and 
feel free to skip to Tiff's story, but don't. <laughs> you can. I don't know if mine's but... going to be that much better. I've got a, a few gross things in mind too, but yeah. Well, hey, you know what? It's a competition. Everything's a competition. Life's a competition. We'll see who wins. <laughs> oh, you're you're gonna win. I I could I can probably tell already, but yeah. I, feel it. I mean, we're talking about dead bodies. It's gonna get nasty. See, y'all, this is gross. That's again the informal title. All right, here we go. I take you to Key West, Florida. The year is 1940, which I think you'll find is way too damn recent for what I'm about to tell you. A woman named Nana Medina went to visit her sister's grave, which was technically a mausoleum, because she'd heard talk around town that, and that I can't imagine hearing this, but she'd heard talk that her sister's body might be missing. But she can't get in to check because apparently the cemetery keepers didn't have the key so that she can, you know, just just ease her mind. So she contacts a family acquaintance who had been acting as a caretaker of sorts, and he ignores her. And she's ending up pleading with him. And he finally gives in and says, come out to my house. And who boy, did she get the answer to her question. So let me tell you about him. Dude's name is Georg Carl Tanzler, but he goes by Carl. He was born February... Uh, Carl, Georg, so George without the E. Like oh, in, um, <laughs> do you remember Sound of Music? That was his name. Except, except the, um, the Austrian aristocrats, she'd say, Georg. Yeah. But it's Georg. Anyway. But we're calling him Carl. Okay. He was, he was born February 8th, 1877 in Dresden, Germany. And I'm just going to hit the high points of his life before he came to America because nobody cares. There's just a few tidbits that come up throughout this story that you need to know. So by all accounts, he's a bright kid and he's curious and likes learning and all that good stuff. As he got older, though, he started studying spiritualism and mysticism and whatnot and developed a, quote, preoccupation with death and how to cross the chasm from one side of the grave to the other. And this is probably because of a couple things that happened, one of which was that his mother purportedly believed that a spirit was haunting the castle in which his family lived. That's right, I said, a castle. In his memoir, he goes into great detail about how opulent this castle was, all the statues and paintings and such, and mentions that his mother said there was at least one spirit that liked to hang out there, though he didn't believe in such as a kid. So he was into chemistry stuff, high-voltage electricity, planes and flying. He built a little flyer plane. He says his interests were really just, quote, all the things of the universe, and that he had no interest outside science, not the arts, and this also included not being interested in girls. But then at the age of 12, he said he had a vision of a beautiful young girl, and he painted pictures of her. He then says, You like one of your French girls. Me like one of your French girls. Yes. <laughs> he then says that he had something like nine degrees in advanced studies. So when he's older, he says this. And while he, like I said, was intelligent and well-read, it's incredibly doubtful that he had nine goddamn degrees. One of the sources said that he could never find documentation from German universities that this dude had all this formal education. And Carl's not claiming, like, art history or French or something. He's claiming chemistry, philosophy, physics. And the main one he claimed was medical, that he was a doctor. So in his 20s, after passing all these exams, he's back at the castle working in his study. And one night, the following happens. Pencil moves across his table, matchbox dances across the table, books took to the air, instruments skittered about, all this stuff flew to the floor. Then the table lifts itself up and floats, curtains spontaneously catch fire and then went out, but there was no smoke. Then he hears a sound like a gun pop, and in one of his electric experiments, the bulbs and tubes in it had exploded. From the music hall, he hears a crashing noise, and his easel was overturned, and paintings were torn through the middle. Then chairs are moving around, so he's convinced now that this is something ghostly. 
like so he calls out well, to it's this a castle of course it's haunted hello so he's getting no reply because he's trying to talk to the ghost because he says you know i'm still trying to be scientific about this then several nights later two women visit him two specters that is and he's convinced that one of them was the ghost of an ancestor specifically countess anna constantia von kossel who is of the 1700s and she showed him the other specter with her she shows him the woman who would be his true love quote an exotic dark-haired woman and that she wasn't the woman in his paintings it was she he had to focus focus carl it's the one i'm showing you right now this is who you're destined to be with his true love (laughs) With, quote, the long, dark tresses and a wonderful smile. I was spellbound. All right, fast forward. When he's in his 40s, so this is around 1920, he marries Adora Schaefer and they have two daughters, Aisha and Clarista. But he takes off traveling all the time. And during his travels, a couple things to note. In Italy, he says when he was in a cemetery, he had a vision of a, quote, white lady emerging from a monument, then disappearing. And he thinks that the countess is trying to communicate with him again. And when he's in Cuba, he had a, quote, mysterious phantasm as a dinner guest for a short period. In 1926, so the girls were roughly toddler age, to give you some time perspective, some time frame, he takes off and immigrates to America. And on his papers, he calls himself Carl Tanzler von Kossel, because, you know, why not start things off with a whopper? Because all this is bullshit. He's not a count. He's not royalty. There was no castle. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's, he's absolutely fabricating all this. And speaking of more of his bullshitting, while it seems that he did serve in the military for a while, he also apparently said he'd been a submarine captain. I'm just just throwing that out there. Um, But all through this, he's weaseled his way into working at various times as an engineer on planes, because as said, he really liked to dick around with planes, and as a boat builder, and he called himself a scientist and inventor. That's how he would introduce himself. At one point, he also claimed he built an organ, and I mean the musical instrument, not a body part, that he built it out of driftwood. No, he didn't. But the point is, he could talk his way into getting people to believe this shit, and he also talked himself into various jobs. All right, so he goes to Zephyrillus, Florida, where his sister was already living and was, quote, later joined, and I, I didn't see how long this took, but was later joined by the wife and daughters. But here we go again. In 1927, he is pieced out and gone to Key West. And he talks his way into a job in the radiology department, doing general tasks like blood draws and serving as an x-ray tech at the U.S. Marine Hospital. He also talks his way into into letting, getting them to let him keep this shell of a plane that he's supposedly getting up to speed out back behind the hospital. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) How? How? Like, you should see this thing. It's, it's, it's like this stumpy little, just, it's not, it's not got like a nose or anything really. It's, it's just this stumpy little thing. There's no wings, but there's these huge, huge, massive pontoon wheels on it. And it's like totally, it's, it's at this severe angle. It's tipped like all the way back resting on its tail because of these wheels. And because it doesn't have any wings or anything, it's ridiculous looking. It looks like a kid's plastic toy that the kids just like partially destroyed um and and also while i'm talking just to paint the picture of this guy i mean i'll put a picture of him in show notes but just to describe him for you as you're listening he's this slight built man with a bald head and a white beard and they say that for his job he's dressing in suits and like sometimes these stark white suits and he was never without a fancy cane so i mean i guess it's dressed for the job you want 
Yeah, like dress for the job you want versus the job you have, except, you know, delusional. And I, I mean, imagine, look, seriously, imagine this dude coming in to take your x-ray, like, or whatever. Like, are you here to be the ringmaster or take my blood? Are you going to fry some chicken or are you going to take my x-ray, Colonel? In any event, he, he had this kind of aristocratic demeanor. So he was a snot face, according to interviews, the author of one of my sources who wrote a book. He had done interviews back in the 70s when people were still alive who knew him. All right, now, here's where shit kicks off. A very special patient arrives on April 22nd, 1930. And let me tell you about her. Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos, known as Elena, Ooh. was born, a beautiful name, born in Cuba in 1909. And she immigrated to the U.S. along with her cigar maker father, housewife mother, and two sisters. And they settled in Key West. They were by all accounts poor, but all hardworking, and she was described across the board, like everybody said, as being beautiful, kind, and having a lovely singing voice. Elena married another Cuban-American, Luis Mesa, on February 18, 1926, and they hadn't been married for long before she got pregnant, and sadly she had a miscarriage, and for whatever reason, Luis takes off to Miami and just ditches her. What a dick. Now, around, yeah, what a dick, right? And so around this time frame, it's said that Elena grew pretty lethargic and just was real down, for lack of a better word, and just out of spirits, basically. And her family, very reasonably, thought that she was bummed about the double whammy of the baby and the husband thing. But apparently she started showing some troubling physical symptoms because they take her to the doctor and the doctors diagnose her with tuberculosis, which was the number one cause of premature death in Key West at the time. Enter Carl. He's ordered on this day to go take Elena's blood, and he says he took it from her fingertip instead of her ear like was usual practice at the time because, quote, they were far too lovely. Sure, okay. And upon, like, really getting a good look at her, he says, I looked into the face of unearthly beauty, the face of my dreams and visions promised to me by my ancestor 40 years ago. Her voice was soft and sweet and childlike and reminded me of a mockingbird in spring. I listened to almost the entirety of this guy's memoir. I want y'all to feel my pain. (laughs) So when he sees Uh the paperwork to submit with the blood, he says he was, quote, shocked to see the Mrs. on her name and wondered if he was cursed. But, quote, what did it matter? She belonged to another. Hadn't I belonged to another years ago? You asshat, you're still married. But, quote. But, quote, our relationship had never been of an earthly nature, and all this had very little to do with me and Elena, and that he was best qualified to care for her. So next day, when she comes in for an x-ray, he sees, he sees that she has TB, and he was determined to, quote, bring her back to health. Now, the mother and Elena were appreciative of this interest in her case, because they're, they're not dumb. I mean, everybody knows word on the street is you get TB, you're, you're dead man walking, basically. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're really appreciative of his interest in her case, and they invite him to the family home that evening. Because, you know, he's probably giving them all this spiel about, you know, I was a doctor in Germany. You know, here I'm just in radiology, but I was a doctor in Germany and all that stuff. So, which yeah, is a lot. He's super smart. Count I'm super from smart. He com- right. Yeah, he comes across as smart. He's well-dressed, all this stuff. So I get that they fell for it. They invited him to the family home that evening, and he describes it as small and dilapidated, and that her mother was sweet but simple, and that her sisters were not as pretty as Elena, that she, quote, shone like the sun amongst all these lesser human stars, and, quote, best of all, the husband who I expected to find wasn't there. 
And then that's when he learns that the husband had run off. And he says it fills his heart with joy and deep pity. And he told her she wasn't to worry about anything anymore, that he would take care of her. And while he's at the house, he sees a picture of St. Cecilia playing the organ. And that it was the same saint who he had brought roses to in the catacombs when he was in Rome. Sure, Carl. What? Bullshit. I don't believe him. I don't believe him for a minute. But anyway, he considers the saint his guardian angel who had brought them together. Now, P.S. Carl is in his early 50s and she's 20. P.P.S. It's at this point the wife and kids can forget ever getting any attention or money from Carl anymore. And triple P.S. In the not-so-distant future, one of the daughters falls ill and dies and he doesn't do a damn thing. Doesn't send any money. Doesn't go to the funeral. But I've digressed. All right. (sighs) He's wonderful. He's Count Carl. The hospital (laughs) lacked the equipment that he thought was needed to treat Elena. And so he offers to send her to a TB Institute abroad, but she refused. So it left him only one choice. He had to invent the equipment that she needed. In the meantime, he decides to give her radiation, but the hospitals wasn't strong enough for, quote, deep radiation. And basically what he meant was x-raying the shit out of her because it's not like he had access to actual, do you know what I mean? Like he literally yeah. just intent. Okay. <laughs> and he tells her how he's working on a plane to take her to a South sea Island that he had discovered. And on a his, side note, wait, his plane that's like parked behind the hospital. Yeah. With no, like no wings and, and pontoon. Yeah. And pontoon okay. wheels. Yeah. And, and side note, now I swear I read or heard at some point two other things. And one was that he claimed he owned a coconut plantation on an island close to the equator near where Amelia Earhart crashed. And, oh, sure. the, and the other thing was that he wanted to use the plane to yeet them up to the stars so he could get her exposed <laughs> to some really strong space radiation. <laughs> counts in space all right anyway he makes so he makes her go outside to look at the plane and sit together in the cockpit and she asks the name of the plane because you know she's like this polite little chick she asks the name of the plane and he says it's la contessa elena de Curcel. and so that was the first time he pretty much admitted he wanted to marry her and she's like <laughs> he goes to visit her constantly at one point, hiding an engagement ring and a large bouquet of roses, and he's bringing cakes, wine, and every day he brought her fruit. And he says in his uh, memoir, limes are a great antidote for TB. They're not. And he got medicinal wine from a priest. At another point, he's putting solution with gold drops in it into her water. And he thought her condition was improving. But at the same time, he says that he was the only one who knew that she was still very ill, that both she and the family were in denial. Because, you know, see, he's caught. If she gets cured, he doesn't get to see her anymore. So he's got to convince the family that he's helping her, but that they've got this long road to hoe. You know what I mean? Because he's selling hope. That's all Mm -hmm. he's doing. He's selling hope. And they're gobbling it up because the actual medical professionals are trying to, you know, ease them into the reality of we can can give her comfort care, but there's, there's nothing to do. She's... And she's also got the very aggressive form of TB. That's another thing. So he goes to the sister, Nana's wedding. Nana's getting married to a guy named Mario. And he hated, he says he hated seeing Elena just kind of flitting around doing all this work that night, like serving drinks and running the gramophone. And she's coughing all the way. So he officially proposes that night because he's, he's really wanting to kind of basically get her out of there and get her 
away from all this, you know, her family, and but get her. He feels like they're working her too much and they're causing her too much activity, causing her to, you know, perform too much activity. So he proposes that night, but the mom says, nope, if she's ever going to get married again, she's going to marry another Cuban. He's like, all right. The next day he brings her a radio and a string of pearls. He didn't just like jump in and be like, but didn't you know I'm Cuban? And you <laughs> I'm know, I'm a, also I'm a Cuban. Cuban. <laughs> right. I'm Cuban German. <laughs> I'm Cuban German and I have a castle and we're going to go to the moon. The next day he brings her a radio and a string of pearls and a pendant and earrings. He writes her letters most every day talking about how he's gotten her silk dresses and a wedding gown and quote, even lingerie and silver slippers. And this is the best. He's starting his letters, dearest Elena, and he's calling her darling all throughout and he's signing it off forever yours. And her letters, she's starting hers with Dear Doctor and signing hers off, Your friend, Elena Hoyas. So she's signing off pointedly friend and with her full name. <laughs> and I mean, this is in his, his diary, his memoirs. He's still not getting it. And I just, my dudes, just any dudes who are listeners, just two things. We love you. You have exceptional taste in podcasts. And also stop this shit. Just you've got to stop. Take a hint. Stuff like this, it's not that kind of first leg of a potential thing where both parties are like, you know, are they into me? And should I ask them out? This is this is a firm, a polite but firm, no, I'm not into you. How can I be more clear? So <laughs> stop, stop. All right. So he talks about how she's not really coming to the hospital anymore. And basically, this is her family starting to distance her from him, according to Nana, because He's gone full court press with this romancing thing, obviously. Like, and so one day her excuse was that her father had the car. So he sends a taxi and she's like, um, yeah, I, I don't trust the tax company, which is hilarious. The taxi company that is, which is hilarious. And he borrows a car and goes over there. And she again is like, nope. And this is when he said he realized that there was some sort of, quote, opposition towards me. Another yes, time he showed... Yeah, another time he shows up and finds that they have a lot of guests over and the house is filled with cigar smoke and he sees how it's impacting her. And, and legit, I mean, I imagine she's coughing up a storm. And he says it, quote, made me mad. And so he fusses at them and he says it, quote, hurt the Spanish pride of her father. And the dad tells Carl, if he doesn't like it, he can leave. So they're, they're legit done with his shit. But he's still calling them in his diary, these poor, ignorant people, and that she was blindly devoted to them. He keeps proposing. And she's trying to put him off by saying, I'm not divorced yet. He keeps on. And then she's like, we can't even consider this until I'm well again. So he says he backs off, but he's still all about treating her. And he brings over, quote, a high voltage. Later, he says it's a million volt transformer. And this time Ooh. the family bluntly says, we no longer require your services. And he's just gobsmacked. And he's trying to tell them that the patent medicines they're giving her are useless, that he's the one who knows what he's doing. So he's just bereft, and he's having these elaborate dreams about him and her. And when he wrote to her about it, she sends Nana to the hospital to tell him, quote, dream no more. Y'all, I just, I can't. I can't. I just, I can't with this dude. He's still showing up with fruit and, quote, other little delicacies, but she's so sick she's not really eating and he brings her limes didn't help no shockingly her, the limes didn't help 
he brings her a jewelry catalog at one point and asks her to mark things that she liked, but, and she did, she marked like th- three things because he wouldn't leave her the fuck alone. She marks like three things and she says, but don't get me all three. But of course he does. And he says he thinks this ingratiated him with the family again. But you know, I mean, they're desperate at this point. She is fading and fading fast. And they let him bring in a smaller transformer and hook her up. And he admits that he jump-started her till, quote, she cried for me to stop. But at the same time, he also asserts that everybody thought it was kind of a fun little game. And I want to punch him in his delusional head. He's also... Is he just, like, electrocuting her? He's just kind of... It's it's like mini jumper cables. He's hooked up, like, metal electrodes to, like, EKG leads without the the protective pads is what he's done. Yeah. So... Oh, my God. um, And he's also probably messing with her tits. Let's just be honest. So, okay. So he asserts that everybody thought it was fun. He's also got this throat spray that she said she hated the taste of and the smell of. And this contraption that looks down her throat and that he crams it down until, quote, until I could almost see her tonsils. And he zaps it too. Zaps. It zaps. Like it has some sort of electric property to it too because this guy's got such a hard on for electricity. And he says it's this respirator thing that pushes out ions and oxygen molecules into the air like i have no idea where he's even beginning to get this stuff from there are some things like fake medicines that i can kind of see the thought process you know some historical stuff i've read i kind of see where they're going i I literally have no idea I, i can't draw a connection where he's getting electricity with a respiratory infection i don't get it He says she begged him to buy her a new bed. No, she didn't. I am positive. So he does, and it's all fluffed up with silk, and he goes further and buys a whole bedroom suit. And he again is proposing, and she's like, dude, I'm going to die. And he says she had him cut up her wedding pictures and burn them in the stove, which I'm sure he did when she was passed out and he was digging through her shit, you know? And it was then he says that she asked him to take care of her body after she died. He, quote, says, I consider this our marriage vow. Now, let me do a little interpretation here, if I may. What she said was, my family's poor as fuck, and you seem to have an unending supply of money. So can you handle the funeral and everything? And what he heard was, I am giving you my body. I, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I could tell you that this, this incident doesn't have impact on the rest of the story, but I think y'all have guessed by now that that ain't the case. So as the treatments continue, the dad and Carl really get into it. And dad's finally, I'll get these devil machines out of my house, but she's getting worse and worse. And he's talking about how she's coughing up like these mucus plugs and stuff. And that's TB's jam. I mean, you're literally coughing up your lungs, the blood and the tissue and all that jazz. So he had a homemade blood transfuser ready, saying that he was ready to give her his own blood if he had to. He also says he overheard people discussing Elena's situation in a cafe and that they were saying they'd heard her parents were considering sending her to a mental institution. But I am 99% positive he misunderstood and thought they were saying sanatorium when they were actually talking about a sanitarium because that's what they called these places that were, you know, for TB patients. My grandfather actually had to stay in one for a little while when he was a kid. Of course, this wasn't in the 30s. This was later when we knew more about TB. But it was strictly, like, back then, 
it was more for like end of life care to just kind of isolate them all so they weren't infecting other people. When my grandfather had to go, it was more it was more for the in, the infection transmission part, but there were wings, they were, they were separated by wings of, you know, the recoverable type because it, by that point they were they they understood that there were certain strains and that, you know, it was it was yeah. actually, you know, in most cases a bacterial infection and blah blah blah. Okay. So, but like I said, my granddad, he had a much milder strain, but the one that killed Elena, she likely had the worst one because it laid her out over the course of a year. And she's like this strong 20, 21, 22 year old, you know? So Carl gets up in arms and writes this letter about how Elena is his wife and she is of sound mind and he absolutely would not allow it. And he gives it to Elena and tells her to keep it under her pillow and to present it if anybody tries to take her away. And I imagine she was like, (laughs) whatever, (laughs) she's dying. (laughs) In any event, they have to deal with him for quite a while yet, and a year passes, and now she's on comfort care, you know, like hospice, basically, just painkillers, and he knows they're giving her injections, and he's pissed about it, and the way he talks about it in the memoir, he talks about it like it's more, you know, hoo-ha medicine, like just total BS medicine, but in my mind, I suspect, because there was talk of like bruises on her thigh, muscle so i i would bet dollars to donuts they're giving her morphine injections Mm -hmm. you know like hospice stuff okay now let me stop here real quick in case i haven't convinced you about the fact that elena was not into him elena's sister nana gave a lengthy interview to the miami herald many years later and she said quote talking about elena she never loved him she was only nice to him because my mother told her she should be kind to those who were kind to her she looked upon him as a grandfather and when he proposed marriage she always told him you're too old why you are old enough to be my grandfather what's more i do not love you but he became so persistent we asked him to stay away from the house (laughs) right Uh uh-huh uh-huh they were oh, okay. polite till they couldn't be polite, and even then, it he just would not stay away. So, in 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 many respects, I think they kind of allowed him to do certain things, like you know, come to the wedding, for instance, and occasional treatments and stuff. Because I think they thought if they allowed allowed him a little bit, he would dial it down. But yeah, no. So now mm-hmm. comes the day when Elena dies. October 25th, 1931, and Carl's at work finishing up, and he's getting ready to go see Elena, and Mario, who's Nana's husband, comes to tell him Elena was dead, and he describes this dramatic arrival, and that they allowed him to see the body, and another doctor, you know, well, an actual doctor, has arrived to pronounce her dead, and he says, he's just pissed, he's like, if they'd come to get me earlier, there might have been a chance, and no, Carl. No. Mm. The family agrees, likely in their grief, to let him attend to the funeral arrangements. And he writes that he listened to the voice of his heart more than his brain and starts thinking to himself that she is not actually dead. And at the wake at the house, he parks himself by the casket because he, quote, wanted to drink in her beauty for the last time. And is saying, just he's just saying this shit like, even though her eyelids were closed, he could feel her looking at him, and that he felt her spirit, quote, floating around the room, fairy-like. Who's got two thumbs and is bug-fuck crazy? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> oh, oh, and, and he also copped a feel, because, you know, he's so in her boobs. He said at one point when he was alone with the body, he tucked a letter he'd written to her, quote, under her dress next to her breast. Don't oh, worry, everybody. Oh. It gets worse. He goes daily to the cemetery 
And now he's starting to get worried about the ground, that with uh, the rainfall and like the humidity and all that of Florida, that it's not draining well enough and that she's going to get all soaked and rotten. He's also been going to her house every night and she's dead, but he's still going to the house, y'all, and learns that the family is thinking about moving. And he says, quote, I got the distinct feeling I was not being told the truth. And so he tells them he'll either rent the house or he'll buy it if they're moving. And that if they were going to keep the stuff that he gave her, some of it was on installment payment plans. And that he'd contact the companies and they'd be responsible for the rest of the costs. And they were like, uh... So he's repoing the gifts that he gave to her? Yeah, yeah, he's threatening them because they're poor. So he, this is a valid threat. And they're poor, so they're like, um, we can't afford that. So he essentially, you know, he's calling their bluff. And then he goes, I'll be staying here regardless of whether you move or not. And I'll be staying in Elena's room. And he says of sleeping in her bed, quote, it still preserved the sweet scent of her hair and that he hadn't slept so well in years. I feel so badly for this family. I, I can't even begin to say how badly I feel for this family. He, he's oh. put them in such a rock and a hard place. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he convinces them because of his you know groundwater spiel he convinces them to let him build a mausoleum and reinter her and this and they give permission and the city or county or whatever allows you know gives that permission and for a couple months while the thing is completed she's parked at the funeral home and Carl, of course, has brought a bunch of stuff to redress her and spritz on her and all this shit. And, and oh, wait for it. He's also constructed an incubation tank with valves on it because he's essentially going to suspend her in this mixture that it's homemade, but it's, it's essentially like formaldehyde. If you guys have ever seen, you know, like specimens floating in jars, whether in person or on TV, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's formaldehyde. So he is... Nuts. He <laughs> says when they opened the coffin that decay had set in and all the other stuff that's described tells me she probably, because this isn't too terribly long after she's been dead. So what they're describing tells me that she's not been embalmed terribly well. But even then, y'all, I mean, embalming doesn't mean you look perfect from now until Jesus comes. Just FYI. But he insists that it's the coffin that just sucked. The coffin sucks. It's not her. It's, she's not the stank. It's totally not her. She's perfect. Carl is incorrect. <laughs> now, she's placed in a new regular casket and then an outer metal coffin. Because, like I say, this is going to be a mausoleum and that's how those roll. And he sneaks back into the mortuary and he puts her into this incubator he's built. And he fills it up with his, his stuff. Then he replaces her in the regular coffin and then closes up the metal coffin and fastens it all back up so nobody knows that he's done this. And then they put her in the crypt and he's put curtains up in there and crosses and votive candles that he plans on keeping lit so she won't be in the dark. And he's the only one with the keys to it. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he's like Martha stewarded the shit out of it and then like triple locks it and he's the only one with the keys this is great too another another nice little detail like there's a plaque outside of it you know and he's put her name on it but he leaves off her married name so it's just her maiden full full name like maiden name and he's mm -hmm. also had his name inscribed on the lower half i'm not sure what like if it was like erected by count carl von castle or i don't know i can't i couldn't read it and nobody ever said but anyway he gives himself credit so <laughs> 
He visits every day at sunset, and it's and at some point, and this is now we're trucking on through time. This is now we're at the eighteen month mark after she's died. He starts hearing banging. Nobody's around. He checks. He cruises the graveyard for just a second. He checks, and when he gets back, he sees all the like screw screw on type things around the metal outer coffin were popped. He decides Elena is being mischievous and teasing him. And now he hears tapping and scratching from inside. So he opens it up and now he hears her voice. And she tells him, you do love me still, don't you? Tell me, am I really dead? And he's like, nah, girl, your body's just asleep. You're just dreaming. And she goes, I wish you would take me with you to your home. I want to stay with you. And he says, well, when it's darker, he'll bring her with him to his house. He also says that she smells great. No, really. He says this. He legit thinks it smells like perfume and her skin and her hair. So now he's pumped and he starts getting his plan together and he starts bringing her gifts again every night like he did when she was alive. And he says that sometimes, you know, she'd be a chatty Kathy. Other times she was silent and sometimes she would tell him what was in his pockets. So, you know, she's doing parlor tricks. She's a magician. (laughs) She's had time to work on it. Okay. Yeah. She's had. Yeah. Look. She got her new 15. Look, if we'll come back in a month, she'll have a brand new 15. And uh, if, you, if you bring her a hat, she'll pull out a rabbit. You know, she's <laughs> Elena's multifaceted, okay? Another night when he was there taking pictures of this crypt, and I've got a picture of it in show notes. It's really this squatty thing. There's, I think the one I saved, and if not, I'll find it, has people standing beside it. And I, I want to say, like, maybe, like, up to a, a, a tall man's maybe uh mid torso ish area i mean it's squatty is my point so it's like um, five feet maybe something like that i mean basically i mean you could crawl in and get in there it reminds me of like kind of one of those elaborate kids like pre-made treehouse playhouse type things oh, it's, okay yeah, yeah yeah it's wider but it's it's in that vein of size it's not like full standing big door rich person new orleans mausoleum type thing so one night he was there taking pictures of it he feels hands stroking his face and his bald little head and when he developed the film he sees this bright white figure standing near the entrance and he subsequently saw it in front of him ghosting through the door on another night and he felt tingles when he touched the coffin elena is also singing spanish songs for him one specifically about how a grieving groom rescued the body of his dead bride and this song actually does exist so that element of it wasn't a delusion and he sings german songs back to her in particular one that his mother loved there are so many layers to this (laughs) i mean now the cemetery was located the way it's described is in this kind of big open public area that had neighborhoods and shops and whatever all around and that the neighborhood kids would throw stones at him and tease him for you know being obsessed with the corpse So he starts visiting later at night instead of at sunset, you know, instead of in the evening. And he's waiting until the moon is waning so it's not so bright. Which, this was Elena's idea, by the way. So he can take her home. And he tells her this is still going to be a wicked trick to pull off. And she goes, step outside. Let me break this down for you. You're going to throw a big blanket over the iron fence to block everybody's view. But how am I going to lift the casket, he asks her. Get a kid's wagon, she says. Because of course, Carl. Come on. <clears throat> oh, <laughs> I'm Carl, sorry. Carl, use those seven degrees. Come on, man. Should I say, of course. <laughs> I am trash. <laughs> All right. So 
But he, but he, because of course it's him, it's not her, had scoped out around the cemetery and there was an abandoned house across the street. And so he rents it. And he also finds this side gate that nobody ever used. So he's prepared. He comes with cushions and ropes and he gets her coffin settled in the wagon and he calls her, quote, the precious load. He calls her that multiple times in this, in this audiobook that I listened to. He's got his fucking precious. <laughs> It, it his oh precious load. <laughs> All oh right. Okay. If if any, by the way, men, dudes, my dudes, again, don't ever call anything to do with a woman a load. All right. I ain't your load. There's there's no load. I don't know what y'all are thinking. Get your minds out of the gutters. There's no load. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) He says, all the spirits of the cemetery are lined up for a joyful wedding march that angels walked on either side of them, guarding them. Now, y'all, this next thing is, I can't, I can't, I tried, okay? I can't describe this any other way. When he's hoisting the thing, because it won't fit through that little gate. The little gate was just how he, how he snuck in. You know, he didn't want to go through the main entrance just in case he was seen. So when he's hoisting this thing, the ground gives way a little under his feet because of all the weight that's concentrated on that one spot, you know, him and the casket and the body. So it falls on him, which go, Elena, go. And he says supernatural strength flowed through him. He lifts it off of himself and that he was soaked with what at first he thought was blood from where it clocked him on his head. But he noticed it smelled foul and that it was running all down his suit. And oh joy, a valve has popped and all the liquid, his concoction, (laughs) plus Elena goo has slimed him. (laughs) And this foreclosure is she just house. the territory? Is that right. what he thinks it is? Yeah, there's your precious load, you fuck. <laughs> so this foreclosure house has no electricity or running water, but he sure as shit had a stash of booze. So he bathes himself and his clothes in whiskey because he can't show back up at her parents' house with, you know, her all over him. He leaves her in the house for the weekend, then goes back on Monday and gets her somehow to the plane, the, the again, heavy quote-unquote plane, on the hospital grounds. And somewhere it says he took a taxi because later, just trust me, he took, he took a taxi, but the driver was clueless, even though this giant human-sized box was getting loaded into the trunk. But um, he <laughs> swears that he, has no, he had no idea what was in the box that he helped Carl load and unload. So anyway, Carl is now comfy in his little plane. He opens the coffin and he says he was, quote, disheartened. And yeah, I guess so. He says her dress is decayed and moldy and her eyes are sunk for one thing. And for another, there's some maggot action happening. And now that odor isn't so pleasant now that they're in this cramped little plane. And he's saying it is, quote, overwhelming. And dude, I don't care if you hose that plane down and all the Axe body spray money can buy. Decomp is there to stay. (laughs) Elena says to him, you don't love me anymore. And he assures her that he does. And to prove it, he, quote, kissed her dry lips and forced breath into her lungs until her chest rose. He then puts her in. By the way, guys, lungs are very fine tissue. They're going to be one of the first things to break down. I don't know what. I mean, this dude had to have pumped air like he was filling a tire like to get her chest in there <laughs> mother of but god it's so romantic yeah this is soups romantic so he then puts her in a wedding dress and puts a crown on her head and crawls into the casket with her and quote kissed her as if she was alive 
And all I can picture is Gina Davis and Beetlejuice. Do you remember that scene? Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah. 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 In the wedding dress. Oh, yeah. And she's just getting all sunken. And okay. And he says that they are experiencing bliss laying there eye to eye. But Carl, she ain't got no eyes. <laughs> he also took samples from, quote, various parts of her body and put them on slides because he wanted to look at them under the microscope to check for illness. But there's nothing showing up but just like the little eat away itchy bacteria. There's no TB. And so he's like, hey, she's better than ever. And of course, there's nothing like that. She dead, Carl. She gone. She gone. <laughs> <laughs> he drones on for a while about how undertakers and families are just too hasty and rushing to assume that for some, that some people are for real dead. He's like a goddamn hobbit. It's like, this is just second breakfast or 11sies, you know? It's not actually lunch. Let's just, whoa, <laughs> let's pump the brakes here, okay? Okay, we're like rushing into this. All right, so he gives her glass eyes. And, and where the fuck in 1930s Key West does one even procure glass eyes? I, I, mm. in addition to the eyes, here's some more of what he did. He splinted up her nose, which had gotten busted up when the casket fell on his stupid head. And I've seen the pictures. It's Michael Jackson nose, y'all. He's bandaged and splinted her toes and fingers. He's bathing her and dousing her in perfume constantly and powdering her and lotioning her up with his concoctions that had like olive oil and whatever in it. And he's wrapping her in silk and sealing it with wax to preserve her skin. But I'm telling you, it's because her skin was falling the fuck apart. And he's fortified the limbs with piano wire. He stuffed the cavity, so, you know, her torso, with rags. He's flushing the body with makeshift embalming stuff and doing some peritoneal lavage, the way he's describing it. And he's giving her other, quote, nourishment through her mouth and got her to where she's puffed up to the point she's, she's, she's put on 20 pounds. She was so emaciated when she died, I'd wager, that now it probably is looking closer to the weight of an average person. He styled her hair and he's added to it with hair that he'd taken from the house back when she was alive because, of course, it's all brittle and falling out. Okay. Oh, and he says, come on. Oh, yeah. Look, if you're going to do something, Tiff, if you're going to do it, <laughs> do it, do it right. And he says he's doing all this because he says if she were to awaken and see herself, it would cause a shock and a second death. And apparently there's, you only got one shot at this, at keeping the soul in the body and then the soul would restore it all back to normal. And while he was at it, he's also made several death masks. So like, for those who don't know, this is like the plaster stuff you guys have seen. I know you've seen it. Mm -hmm. If not, look it up on YouTube. But like, if, they, if you see behind the scenes for movie stuff, it's the, it's so that they have the actor's face for a model to do like FX makeup. So, you know, the actor doesn't have to sit there and wait while they go through all their trials of it. But anyway, this is just in case her face doesn't hold up. And he says that while she actually she hadn't really been talking to him um, of late, you know, since she's back at the plane, she's not really talking. Like, but her face expressed, quote, divine peace again. I have seen these pictures and no Carl again. No. At some point, <laughs> a couple years in, and I'm not sure how long, but a while, the hospital makes him move the plane and brother-in-law Mario helps him tow it to some land that he owned out on some remote beach. And so now he doesn't need to live with her family anymore. And this cracked me up. Quote, Mario made quite a show of riding atop of it to the gaze of curious onlookers. We must assume that he had no idea his long-dead sister-in-law was being smuggled inside. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm just imagining he, this guy, like, 
waving his arms like a cowboy, just like, yeah. <laughs> fucking mechanical bull. <laughs> Anybody got some Corona? Woo! <laughs> Carl becomes this stereotypical kooky recluse, you know, like you do when you're shacking up with a dead body. And it's, it's and when I say shack, literally shack, he's living in this shack that has you know, kind of like that abandoned house, same drill, no running water or electricity. And I'm sure the plane's somewhere out back. Like now he's just white trash. It's up in the yard on bricks. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's photos of him in front of it, like in uh, of the shack and all that, like in Bermuda shorts and sneakers with no socks, because let's just add that nice little frosting on top. I hate when people aren't wearing socks. The only way it would have been better for me is if he had on Birkenstocks with knee socks. <laughs> <laughs> but now I've digressed again. Then some restoration efforts kick up around the beach. And this is another couple years later. So he finds a new home and gets a bunch of dogs to guard the house, which is probably paranoia, I would think. All right. So in 1935, he loses his job at the hospital due to budget cuts and hardly interacts with anybody. And just when kind of he goes into town for supplies and admits at this point, he has finished with the incubator stuff. He's done messing with that. And he's just gone on and moved her into the bed. I mean, y'all, y'all, I just, and he keeps wrapping her with silk and sealing it with wax so she won't leak. And one of my sources says he ended up adding this kind of gutter trough type thing all the way around his bed to, you know, catch the um, seepage, we'll call it. But she's getting more and more desiccated. So at least that's a positive. She's kind of starting to dry out and go mummy. And she slips down to like 30 or 40 pounds. But don't worry, though. She's back to talking and singing to him. And he's playing an organ for her because he got an organ. (laughs) He (laughs) didn't manage to build another one out of driftwood. He just went on and got one. And then there's other tidbits like they dance together and quote, He wrote in his memoir that he made Elena breakfast, eggs, and a cup of Lipton tea. He filled the vases next to her bed with flowers and sometimes just talked to her about the weather. You know, normal relationship stuff. Right, of course. It's what you're now seven years. Why are you judging? I'm I'm, I'm, I'm a judgy, judgy, mean person. Like, Carl, Carl, were you checking out that waitress? No, baby. No, I wasn't. Is it because she has eyes? Is it, Carl? (laughs) Is it because she has eyes? <laughs> Do you think if he would like point something out to her, he would move the eyes? Like, would he roll her glass eyes for her to make her look at things? Oh, oh my my! <laughs> oh my my! I thought at first I thought that you were saying like when he said something stupid, would he like put his little <laughs> like two fingers and like make her eyes just like up in the side like eh, Carl? Eh. <laughs> Like roll her, roll her eyes for. Okay, we're oh god, oh we're going to hell. All right, we're now seven years out from Elena's death, which brings us back to where we began when her sister Nana has put her foot down, and she's now at Carl's house. What had happened was on September twenty eighth, Mario came and got Carl because the vault at the uh, mausoleum, whatever, had been broken into. And Nana and the cemetery sexton were there waiting on them. And since Carl was the only one with the keys, they asked him to open the outer coffin to make sure that Elena hadn't been disturbed. Like, because, you know, vandalism's one thing, but if somebody's messing around with their body, that's another. And mm-hmm. he refuses. He was so vehement about it. They were like, all right. Then they try again. O- on October 1st, Mario comes and gets him once more. Nana's there again. 
and they're asking him to open things up to ease her mind that Elaine is there. He's still refusing. She then threatened him with contacting the cops, and he is just, then he turns nasty. He goes through all this insulting her, saying it was her that broke into the tomb, that she wanted to steal Elena's jewels. So now Nana results to begging. Like, she's just trying to go sympathy because she can't reason with him. She can't threaten him. So now she's just going to beg. And she's saying that she'll go crazy and she's getting all emotional. And sidebar, the real story, of course, is that Nana had heard rumors that Elena might no longer be in her crypt. And that reportedly he was seen dancing with a large human-sized doll through the window. And so she just has to know. And, And maybe, you know what, maybe she was the one that busted into the crypt. Who knows? One of my sources says, quote, The combination of Carl's habit of routinely buying women's clothing, his absence from the the mausoleum, you know, because see, everybody saw him. He used to visit every damn day. And a local boy's sighting of him through a window dancing with what appeared to be a giant doll aroused some serious suspicion. The rumors began to swirl that Tansler was keeping Elena in his house. So Carl's like, well, I don't want you to go crazy. So here, come on. This will make you feel better. And this is how she discovers Carl's been kicking it with Elena for seven years. Because he just lets her in and pulls back the curtain as she sees this lump of whatever that used to be her sister. And now how Nana kept her shit together is beyond me. But my guess is... She, for real, knew at this point she was dealing with a person who is officially banana pants psycho. And she's all, look, look, you put her back. You put her back. <laughs> and this never happened. We never speak of this again. Whatever. Just put her back. He agrees. Shockingly to no one, Carl does not put her back. And Nana says, we're done. And she goes to the cops. Good on Nana. He is 70 yeah. years old. Go, Nana. He is seven. And by the way, I haven't mentioned this because um, it's slightly irrelevant, but just to kind of paint her, to show you what a ball buster she was, she's sick too. She's already in the early stages of dying from TB, and the parents and the third sister had already died by this point. So oh she's God. buried her whole family, and she's in the early stages of it too. Nana's a badass. We love Nana. So he's 70 years old when he's arrested for basically grave robbing. The charge specifically was, quote, wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. But here's the thing. The statute of limitations, because it'd been seven goddamn years, had run out. And I don't know about y'all, but to me, dicking around with dead bodies should have a statute of limitations of, you know, never. Yeah. <laughs> But apparently it was like two or three years. So while a hearing was going on to determine if there needed to be a trial was happening, Elena's body was once again, third time's a charm, sent to the funeral home. And here's what they did, which was super classy. They put it on display. Something like 7,000 people ended up going through and seeing her. Un-fucking-real. Now, one source said that they charged... Right, yeah. She was like, I can tell you what's in your pockets. Um, one source, but it was only one. So I, I has it I didn't, you know, put it down as fact, but one source said that they were charging like a buck a head. So <laughs> Yeah. Again, it's classy. Whether they did or not, super classy. There are photos of this nasty ass pile of a thing and yeah, there's adults, but also children are gathered around it. 
And the author said that they even at one point let out school so that kitties could come and take an eyeful of corpse, you know, like it was a field trip. And then we'll go get ice cream. Like, what the hell, y'all? I mean, I can't even. But I'm still going to put a photo of it in show notes for you. <clears throat> okay. Now, <laughs> this made international news. In one newspaper article in defense of himself, he's quoted as saying, I did not want one so beautiful to go to dust. And y'all, again, let me be clear. This was not an Eva Peron pristine preservation situation. It, I will, there are some really horrific pictures out there. I'll put the one that's just like mildly, you know, make your head tilt and go, huh. I'll put that one in show notes. I'm not going to put the really <laughs> grotesque ones. Just y'all knock that out yourselves. But Tiff, I have to ask. So how do you think, you know, so we've heard kind of what the court, the court's trying to decide what to do with him because they don't really know. But how do you think that the public reacted? I mean, they went and were looky-loos, but that's just like morbid fascination type stuff. That's, we see that in lots of our stories. But how do you think just in general that the public reacted and how do you think the press reported on this? Oh God. I, I hope that I'm right in thinking that they just like, ripped him apart <laughs> like look at this fucking psycho look what he did please please tell me i'm right <laughs> and i quote and that's when the gifts started arriving at the jailhouse people brought him fruit cookies and hot tea they serenaded him at night a group of women from tampa brought him money locals posted his bond an attorney took on his case pro bono a radio station in havana ran a soap opera about elena and count von kossel's great romance <laughs> what yeah no <laughs> oh, my God. oh oh but yeah he wore a tuxedo jacket and bow tie and tennis shoes with no socks at the trial <laughs> come on carl and the public was just like all right whatever and the women like one one source said women would like gasp you know when he was on the stand and he would describe his love for her they were just like ah and gasp and just when cuz he's detailing all his quote undying love for her and they thought of him as just an eccentric romantic and oh, oh here it is here it is he said on the stand about the plane talking about wanting to fly them quote high into the stratosphere so that radiation from outer space could penetrate elena's tissues and restore life to her somnolent form she ain't asleep, Carl. <laughs> She's not asleep. <laughs> but it's still one of those things, for whatever reason, that people are finding romantic. And in any event, Nana testifies how he had the only key and refused to let her in about how she'd heard the gossip and denies that she broke into the mausoleum and all that. So the judge orders him to be examined and a lunacy board finds him sane. Like three no. separate doctors. Oh, yeah. Oh and the judge God. also ordered that the body be examined for, quote, violation. And Carl asserts in his memoir that they found nothing, of course, because she was basically mummified. And uh, he would never. Like, what? What? Why would you even suggest? I don't. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a second. <laughs> the judge these also. people all go to the same medical school that Carl went to? Exactly. <laughs> I don't, to I don't fakey... know if any of them are qualified. <laughs> to fakey fuck university? Yeah. The judge also rules about a secret burial and that Carl will not be allowed around Elena ever again. And Carl claims essentially ownership of property. Like, because, you know, before she's just this magical, his sweet little dumpling, his, his magic load or whatever, he, his <laughs> precious load, whatever. Um, load. But now she's property. Like, she's an object now. Now. 
now, of course, and that that he had been given her the that by Elena herself and the family. And he says, quote, this will be the end of everything for me. But she was. She was buried in a secret location, only known to Nana and the people who buried her. So, you know, like the cemetery sexton and the police. And to this day, I mean, they took it to their graves. Literally, nobody knows where she's been buried. So Carl decides to go back to Zephyrillus, Florida, to his sister and estranged wife and the daughter that's still alive. (laughs) And he's bringing the organ and the plane and the old casket with him. But before he goes, he builds one last invention. Old Carl builds a bomb. And he blows up that mausoleum, but he timed it to where what? he was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he timed it to where he was already on the road out of town. And so the cops could never tie it to him. And so he. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just one nice last little middle finger to all of them. So he pretty much back in Zephyrillus, he pretty much is living in the plane. So good on his wife and fam for that one. Mm -hmm. But he makes a life-size doll of Elena with one of her death masks. And when he was found dead around July 6, 1952, he'd been dead already for about three days before anybody noticed. And good, because the shitbird deserved to rot a little bit, you Sigmund Freud looking fucker. And uh, when they found him, (laughs) it was beside the table that he had the doll laid out on. Note of interest, the plane was later moved to a neighbor's yard and children would play in it. No! Oh. Oh. Now, <laughs> now I'm going to ask no. <laughs> I'm going to ask you something, Tiff. Do you want to know what came up when the autopsy results were revealed about 30 years later? Okay. <laughs> uh, are you sure? Okay. All right. Okay. It's, all right, so anybody who doesn't want to hear this skip forward a handful of seconds. They found that her vagina had been reinforced with a substantially sized plastic tube that was lined with silk and that rags were stuffed into the far end. Motherfucker. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. uh, uh, A corpse fucker, I believe, is a... You know, that's that's your story. That's your story of Carl Tanzler, any woman's greatest desire. That's the dream. <laughs> God. It was so romantic. I don't even have words. <laughs> romantic. Hey, you know what? Um, I'm looking at the time. I talked for too long. I did not realize we're at an hour right now and that's not fair to you so do you want to let's wrap it up and we'll make this a two-parter okay yeah (laughs) yeah that's fine i say let's do it so we'll wrap this up okay uh what's our deal so you know like rate review on your platform of choice keep sending us stories from your families or hometowns or stuff you'd like us to try and cover and Hello to all the new followers. Oh, I saw recently we're getting some love from the UK, Germany, Malaysia, and most recently Sweden. And if you're a Skarsgård, you are to contact me immediately. (laughs) All right. So, uh, Hala and my girl there, she needs it. (laughs) I, I have to say, you know, Keanu Reeves, forever my heart. But if you're a Skarsgård, Look, I'm I'm a dish. I'm a dish. I'm I'm not big. I'm 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 easy on the eyes. Uh, I hope you have eyes. I do have eyes. I have eyes. I have all my <laughs> fluids. My fluids are intact. Um, 
I'm not held together by piano wire. I have a head full of hair. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> all right, so that's part one of Corpses. Part two. Part two is all Tiff next time. <laughs> stay spooky. Yeah, stay spooky, guys. Take a breather. <laughs> Take a breather and go, go, don't douse yourself in whiskey. Go have a shot of whiskey after that story. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUPodcast and on Instagram at youtotallymadethatup. Feel free to contact us on those platforms, and you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.